Great morning, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of Thank God for Monday. I'm Brother Greg Cellini, the Franciscan Brothers of Brooklyn and Seton Hall University class of 1985. My great pleasure to be back with you again today. The purpose of our show, Thank God for Monday, is to inspire you, our audience, to take personal responsibility for your professional satisfaction. We want to provide you hope, healing, and peace in these unprecedented, turbulent, uncertain times. Motivate you to search deep inside yourself in the quest for fulfillment. Listeners, it's really up to you as to how you utilize the information we provide today. Take full accountability for the decisions you make and a resulting outcome. Now, one of the goals of our show, thank God for Monday, is to introduce role models, role models of people who take very bold steps in their work lives. This is a very special time. It's the summer when rest and reflection are key. However, there is nothing that can intrude on rest and reflection more than irritating colleagues. And as such, we are honored today to have with us a most special guest. His name is Chris DeSantis. Chris is an independent organizational behavior practitioner, speaker, and podcaster with over 35 years of experience working with firms domestically and even internationally. He's also the author of a very enlightening book, Why I Find You Irritated. Navigating Generational Friction at Work. Great morning and welcome to Thank God for Monday, Chris. <laughs> Good morning, Greg. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to speaking with you on this topic. Oh, uh, <laughs> the honors all ours. Kindly share with the listeners from what city and state you're speaking from this morning. Sure, most certainly. You are hearing me, uh, New York from Chicago, Illinois, in the neighborhood of Lincoln Park. Oh, wonderful. The beautiful, beautiful, windy city. And I know it's beautiful, especially in the summer, certainly. Chris, sorry to say we've only got 30 minutes. We could spend hours talking about your incredible life and experience, this amazing book. So it's okay with you. We're going to jump right into the deep end of the pool. I look forward to it. We know that different people have varied ideas about the names of each generation and the years they span. This is something I struggle with. Can you kindly define for us the various generations in the years each one spans, please? Yes, yes. I will give you what I, I would normally call the silos. And I, again, these silos are a bit artificial, but the traditionalists in these silos, and I use the work from uh, the Pew Research, because a lot of people who speak on this topic have varying variations of these years. So I just find these seem to be work for me. Traditionalists were born between 1928 and 1945 or so. And then the boomers were born between 1946 and around 1964. And then we have Gen X or Generation X. They were born around 1965 to around 1980. And then we have the millennials, the much maligned millennials, <laughs> who were born between 1981 and 1996 and new into the workplace. Uh, is Gen Z, and they're coming on board now, and they were born between 1997 and 2012. 
and following on their tails as a yet unnamed generation with the placeholder of Gen Alpha. Uh, they were born after uh, 20, 2013. Wow, so that's a lot of generations. A lot of generations out there. Thank you so much, that clarification sure. is very, very helpful. Now, as I mentioned before, you're the author of this book, Why I Find You Irritating, Navigating Generational Friction at Work. I'm very curious. I'm sure our listeners are as well. Chris, what motivated you to write this great book? Well, I started on this topic about 18 years ago because I spent a lot of time, I spend a lot of time working with young people in, in professional services firms because I was either teaching or running schools for them. And what I noticed uh, that the, the younger group that was entering was markedly different than the generation that preceded them in terms of how they interacted, uh, what they expected, and how they vocalized their needs and wants. Uh, and of course, this was great consternation on the part of management in terms of why are they acting that way? And so I thought, I don't know. And so what I started to do is I did homework. And so this book is really the compilation of the homework that I've done. I've probably read 60 of these books and I've tried to find the niche where I am bringing information that is beyond the pale of what people might've read up to this point. It's very, very interesting. You mentioned there's a lot of books out there on this topic. Yes. But thank God for Monday listeners know I'm a terrible reader. So actually, this is the first book that I've come across. But you mentioned there's quite a few others. What makes this great book by Chris DeSantis different, unique than others on this topic, please? Well, going back to these, these silos that I mentioned, one thing I, I address here, one of the things I address is that I'm, I think in terms of waves. See, I don't think we are so siloed, but rather we wash into each other. So I think the, the front end of a generation uh, sort of pronounces themselves to society and then society gleans onto the definition of who they are. And then the back end of a generation seems to have to live under the auspices of these decisions about them. And then eventually you flow into another generation that starts to change again. So I think I, I talk about the fluidity. I also talk about this notion of, I, of I, I, I dispel the perceptions which are amplified in the press versus the realities of our differences, which are far more subtle. But we blame people in a way that is exaggerate, or exaggerated and, and because they are simply different. Another piece that I bring into this book that people don't talk about is, I talk about the very notion of why do we generalize and why do we stereotype? Where does that come from? And how does that do us a disservice? But why do we do it in, in our daily discourse? Because we all do it. We all do it. So, and uh, one more point that you will be asking about is that I will talk about the differences between our stages of life, which people confuse with our generational lens. And that's how our lens is how we see the world. Our stages of life is what we all experience at different times. Thank you very, very much for sharing a great uniqueness regarding this book here. And uh, just before the end of the show, we'll share with our loyal listeners just how they can purchase one or more copies uh, of this book. Now, one thing to me additionally that mm -hmm. was unique about your book, you talk about feedback and performance appraisals. <laughs> uh, a lot of books talk about them, but you talk about them with very little regard. Help us out, please, Chris. Why don't you care for these? Well, for, for one thing, uh, they're called a performance appraisal. Actually, they should be called an opinion of performance appraisal. And for another thing, they are, they are collectively done in terms of they are your opinions that are collective 
And so in that sense, what happens is whoever is in the majority in the workplace determines the skewing of how we were seen by others, which may not be an actual reflection of who we actually are. And there's a difficulty in my mind of, of, of evaluating, I will call tactical skills. For instance, I can tell whether or not you can add or not. I can tell if you can put numbers together. I can tell if you can program. But do, can I tell an abstract skill such as judgment or, or confidence or uh, problem solving? See, those are abstractions. And what we often do is we judge them based on the outcome and not on the process. And so all of these come into, and, and I, frankly, when you are different from somebody, you are judged through the lens of another as opposed to the actual performance you are engaging in. So my, and my other concern about feedback and performance is the whole goal is to make someone be better at what they do. But in, in a sense, we focus on the negative at the expense of the unique gifts that they possess. So we are not balanced in terms of giving the actual help they need to really be good in certain categories, as opposed to commoditize who they become and try to be good in everything, which is not a possibility. So I think they're gonna go away. They have to be redesigned that really embraces what I will call lopsidedness. Yeah, this is so interesting to me because I can remember back, I spent 29 years in big pharma before becoming a Franciscan <laughs> brother of Brooklyn and certainly had a lot of performance reviews. And I think back to those times and there were times where I might be doing nine or 10 things well, but then my manager would point about one area, there mm -hmm. was an opportunity for improvement. And I would forget what he or she said about the 10 things uh, he or she liked and start right. to concentrate on that one thing. Right. Really a, a sore point, or maybe I disagreed with or something. To right. And, and here's the problem. You end up fixing something that doesn't need fixing. You see, what you end up doing is, uh, I, in my view, if, if you're not doing something well, then just be good enough. But then the manager is saying, you have to be great in a category that has nothing to do with your contribution. Oh, wow. And th this is the sin of this, because we are not, we, on our tombstones, it won't be that we were a great programmer, is it might be that we had a great spirit or that we were giving. You see, what is the gift of who we are? And that is the thing we should work on. And the other things we should try to get better at, or we should surround ourselves with people who are better in those categories than we are. Boy, that really makes perfect sense, no doubt about that. Now, another unique item about this book, you have a chapter entitled, The Future is Lopsided. You yes. just mentioned about lopsided. Yeah. What the heck is this embracing lopsidedness? Help us out here. Please. Yeah, well, here's what I think. I think work is a team sport. You were in pharma for 29 years. You, I think you were on teams constantly. Sure. Constantly. In fact, in, in your new vocation, you were on a team of some sort already. So you're on a team. So the question then becomes, what is my contribution to the team that maximizes my abilities? And so, and I, and I argue that we should be on teams of complementary skilled individuals as opposed to redundant ones. So when you have a performance appraisal that makes us all the same, then I, I'm, not really, I'm not really surfacing that which is unique about you and I'm not really rewarding your uniqueness. And so I argue the lopsidedness is what are the few things that will make the name of who you are relative to who you wish to be? What are the things that really engage you in the work that you do that provides you with meaning? And how do we find reasons or ways to get do more of that? And so my idea of the future is we have to embrace that we're each different 
in a special way. And we have to start to rewarding the differences as opposed to trying to find people to be the same to each other. Our listeners here on Thank God for Monday, and we love examples. Might you be able to share an example of this lopsidedness, please, Chris? Yes, yes. So, for instance, we're on a team, and one of the requirements of the team is uh, making presentations. Well, if somebody has an inclination to do that or an interest in that, I would put them in the front of this. Other people on the team might be much more interested in the analytics or the, or, the, or the detail of how this is going to be done. Others will be interested in the idea generation. Others are very good with dealing with people in terms of dealing with the objections they might have or winning them over. And my point would be, what does this team need to accomplish and who is best versed in the particular skills of getting that accomplished who, who are members of our team? And so now what we start to do, now I am not denying the fact that sometimes you have to take on skills that are not your favorite. But my point would be is if I have at least some space to do what I'm very good at, I am more likely to feel engaged at the office. I'm a little bit familiar with concepts of people best utilizing their skills or their strengths, if you will. Is this kind of a line with those? Yes, this, in fact, um, Marcus, Buckingham has he has the strength finder and so in that sense he uses some of the same thing his strengths are a multitude I have to look at strengths in terms of not just the, the the personal traits that you possess but also what skills do you bring to the table and what skills are relevant to this particular team uh, and so and what are your aspirational skills how do we develop those things as well so the point would be I don't want to be prescriptive in deciding what are the your what is your lopsidedness at the company you're at I would say, what does the company need and what are my skills that fit that? Oh, so there's an alignment there between yes. what you have to contribute and what the organization needs. That is absolutely brilliant. Now, before you started to mention phrases like stages of life and generational differences, sometimes these are used interchangeably, but really, if I perceive from reading and what you said before, these are different. Help us out. What distinguishes stages of life from generational differences? Yes. Let me start with the generational differences. A generational difference is the lens through which you see the world. And so you, your lens was developed over time as a child because your awakening as a child introduces you to a world. And that world is not static. I, I was a child in the 60s, and the 60s was a, was a really opening experience. We, it was a time of abundance. It was a time of challenging sort of notions. And so as a child, I think, wow, the world is a really great place. Every, you, know, you can achieve so much. We can get to the moon. You see, those are the flashbulb moments, the significant memories that have that start to shape our worldview. We don't all have the same worldview because we weren't introduced to the world in our awakening at the same time. So if I'll give you an example backwards, because um, backwards in time, let's think of the uh, the kids who were raised during the Great Depression. If you are a child of the Depression, you know this from your grandparents uh, who who saved everything. Now they could you were raised in a time of plenty, and you're going, why are we saving everything? We just just buy more. Again, your worldview is not aligned with their worldview. Mm-hmm. And so what we have here is each generation uh, introduces sort of themselves to the world based on what is going on in the socioeconomics of where they live, 
Uh, what is going on in terms of the priorities in terms of, for instance, today it is climate change and, and violence in the schools and guns. These are, these are very pronounced in our society. Um, and so you have these events that go on and then the flashbulb memories of these years that you see these things and what messages did you hear from your family? Put all of that together and you've got a, you've got a, you've got a generational lens. Wow. Now, oh. the next piece of that you asked me about was the stages of life. Yeah, this is interesting because there used to be four. There used to be a child, a young adult, an adult, and an elder. Now we've we, we're we're living much longer. You see, uh, today our children, on, although the United States on average is about seventy-five years, and it's gone down a year because of the opioid epidemic and COVID, but in the middle classes and such, it's probably in the eighties. And so the young people, any young people listening to me today, one and two of you will be probably live to be over hundred. So you're, you're, you're going to live longer, and, and the literature supports the notion now that there are six stages of life. You're a child, a young adult, an, an emerging adult, mm. an adult, an elder, and a bonus elderhood. The emerging oh, adult wow. is an interesting category. But, and here's another interesting piece to this. I'm sorry to go on, Greg, but we have, we have to ask ourselves, when do we become adults? For instance, uh, you're, you're younger than me, but I would say when I thought I was an adult at 18, and because and, as boomer, you're, you're, you're an adult at 18. When you to ask the, the young today, when are they an adult? The, the actual answer should be around 30, but they conflate adulthood with maturity. I use adulthood only as a contribution to society where you have a, a job, you have a home, you have kids, you have your education. Oh, wow. You see, those are all the things. And those things aren't coming into play until you're around 30 today. So you see the stages of life. Mm. And, and the problem we face is when a young person is in the office, they're in the office, we don't see them as the unique being they are. We see them through the lens of a younger version of ourselves. And this is where we have the disconnect. They oh. are not, they are clearly younger and they are going through that stage of life, but their experience they have is unique to the, to the life they're living and through their lens as well. Boy, that makes perfect sense. Now, one of the things you talk about in this book that I like as well, there's some generational myths that just need yes. to be busted. Can you share with us one or two of these, please, Chris? Yes, I think one of the one. First, let's talk about the millennials, because I think they get the most grief and this is not worthy of them. Uh, what happens? Each generation is a disappointment. We're just not a di disappointment at the same time. You see, uh, boomers were hippies. Uh, Gen X's were slackers, and now millennials' turn is to be the entitled. And, and so what happens with this is we don't see them actually as they are. We see them through the lens of a few that have been amplified through the news. Oh, they're all entitled. Oh. So then, quite frankly, imagine you're a young person at work and you say, you know, I'd like, I'm going to go after a raise sooner rather than later, or I'm going to ask for a promotion, or I'm going to ask for time off. We don't see them asking for that as an individual. We say, oh, it's a millennial who's entitled. Of course, they'll ask for this. Do you follow? We, we name yes. call against what we think they are as opposed to who they actually are. And that's a myth. That's a huge myth as to who they are. These are all myths uh, in the sense because what the real difference between us has more to do with, again, your experiences and I will argue your parental models, which we can talk about. Boy, that's really something, no doubt yeah. about it. Now, a good part of your book deals with communication between generations. Yes, Both yes. of us in our audience know just how important communication is in the workplace. I'm very curious, I'm sure our listeners are as well. 
How can and do messages get lost in transition or in translation at work? Yeah, well, this, this ties to my point about the parental model. I was raised under what's called permissive authoritarianism. That means my parents were in charge. And so, and when I went to school, who was in school in charge? The teachers were in charge. Sure. You know it. And the nuns or the priests were in charge. They were in charge. Oh. You know it. And then when I went to work, who was in charge? The boss. So I was, I have no habit of dialogue with my boss. I had no, and by the way, if I asked why are we doing that? The answer was because I said so. You follow? So in that sense, I didn't, I had to sort of figure out what the boss wanted and then I'd move forward. So I had to be comfortable with ambiguity. Now let's jump ahead two generations to this, this, what's called the millennial model is called concerted cultivation. There's a concerted effort to cultivate the child's greatness. So what this child is a child of dialogue. You see, they've been in dialogue all their lives. So you, when we were passively listening and doing what we were told, these children were actively engaged and this is why we're doing it. What do you think about doing it? What can we do better? So the point of it is it becomes the habit. The misconstruing of that is when they come into the workplace, they engage in their habit of dialogue and we expect them to engage in their habit of passive passivity and listening to what they're being told to do. So we see that as a challenge. You follow? They become uh, insubordinate. Sure. Now, it's very interesting because based on the chart that you gave early on, uh, I'm a baby boomer. I was born in 1959, so I'm a baby boomer. Yes, you are. You're the you're the tail. Yeah, I'm the tail. So as I work now in this wonderful St. Francis College, a lot of the workers are millennials. Yes. So I need to be very careful when I'm communicating with them. Yes. Because I cannot come across as the brother who's just going to say something, expect you to do it. Right. See, this is the point. They are in the habit of context. The context means that, uh, that you, it's not just that they don't mind working for us. I'm not arguing that they would. They want to work, but they want to know why they're working. Why am I doing this? And so we were never privileged to hear the why. We just were told that's why, because that I said so. Yeah. So in that sense, they want to know the why. So your point is when you're working with the young, they want to have some, I, I always advise people, have an expectation meetings with the people that are going to make you successful. And that means saying, this is why I love what I do. What do you need for me to do what you do well? And then what do we need to agree between us and how we will operate? So the point of this is you surface all the ambiguity and as much as you can. And then the pact between us is, I will help you if you in turn provide me this this way. Oh, I love that concept of the expectations meeting. Oh, the, yeah, yeah. Because it's I, critical, I think. You literally sit in a room together? Is that yes. what you do? You would sit in a room because if, now, don't get me wrong. If it's just some person who's going to do some Xeroxing for you once in a lifetime, I wouldn't have this conversation. But if this person is vital to your success in the sense that you, they are, you're nurturing them or they, they are important to how the work is get done, they are worthy of spending time with them to let them in on why you do what you do, what you want from them, what uh, do you they, do they need from you and so forth because that's how you build trust you surface you surface that which isn't known oh, oh that's so brilliant no doubt about that time is getting short we've just got about seven sure. minutes Kristen fortune but i still have the three or four more very important questions to ask sure. uh you've given us already a tip or two as to how to effectively communicate between the generations Maybe another tip or two. Yes, let me and others, please. Let me flip this to the young. Or is that the young is um, when I say let's talk about millennials? 
you're going to be you're going to have people like me working for you. So you're, we're going to have a we're going to have a flipping of this where the young are going to be managing the more senior. I would be careful right. with how you manage us. I would say uh, you have to be more. I will call it uh, Machiavellian. So draw from us. That if, if I could possibly know something, it's better to draw me into the process and say, well, how might you go about doing this? And then build on my suggestions as opposed to dictating to me, because I already have an ego uh, sort of, I will say my ego is involved in this because a young person's telling me what to do. And so, <laughs> and I think if we say, okay, how do I, how do I bring them into the process, respecting their wisdom as if they have it, but always being clear that you still hold, hold the, the decision. So in that sense, it's, it's a clear expectation as well. So the other thing, and this is just a cautionary thing, and this is for you Gen Xers. Gen Xers who are listening, you are the most independent of all of us. And you were sort of, you're the only generation designed for a pandemic. When you had to move from the office to the work home, you didn't think that was a big deal because you've always figured things out on your own. And one oh, of the challenges, oh, wow. and I think one of the challenges with being you is you think you are surrounded by needy people. And they are interdependent while you are independent. And so they like working with you, but you think it's much better to just be able to work alone, you see? So what we do is we foist our preferences on others and then we judge them through the lens of our preference. Oh, this is absolutely amazing. Now, one of the things you really firmly believe as well, mentoring has really changed over yes. the years. Just how has it changed? And why are the young so bent on this mentoring? Well, it's, it's not, again, mentoring used to be an organic relationship that was established through the work we did. And it wasn't, it's not a relationship that you say in advance. It's a relationship you say in reflection. I had a mentor. I had him. You don't say you will be my mentor because that would always scare somebody off. So now what we've done is we flip the model where we assign mentoring. I have no truck with having somebody giving advice. I have a problem when you use a language of mentoring that infers intimacy that is not earned. And it could make both parties uncomfortable because all of a sudden this young person's sharing me with their whole life. And I'm going, oh my God, I don't know you. I don't know you. And I'm not going to take care of you because I don't know you that well yet. But the expectation is you will take care of me. And why do the young want that? Because they're, they're, they, they've lived in a world where people have helped them and they want to help others. And so when they step into the workplace, they said, where is the help that I want? If you look at the Gallup survey, one of the things it says, are there people at work that develop me? Are there people that care about me? Do I have friends at work? You see, that's just all about embracing uh, sort of the, the want of each other. And that's, that's a human oh, want. Wow. Boy, that's really, really something. Now, you touched upon a little bit, but let's peel the onion in a couple of minutes that we have. Sure. The hybrid workplace. Oh, yeah. Just has impacted literally everyone. Yes. What's the impact on a different generation? Yes. Well, this is, uh, again, this has a lot to do with stage of life as well and habit. Boomers want to come back, and senior boomers want us, everyone back to the workplace because we are in the habit of working there. You see, that's part of a habit. And we are empty nesters. So some degree is like, if I'm at home, I'm a home alone and I'm a social person. And this is where I've always done my work and I've succeeded here. So that's part of the habit of who they are. And their socialization is tied to this place. And that's what they want for you. They don't, they're not doing this to you. They think they're doing this for you. This is a disconnect. Gen X is feeling a little more independent because their stage of life is I've still got kids at home. And so this gives me the freedom to do this and I'm inclined to be independent. So they're gonna want some hybrid model. 
Millennials and Gen Z are interesting. We have offered up flexibility for two years of their lives and nothing has collapsed. So now this will be an expectation going forward. My only cause for concern for them is you learn through observation more than you learn in any other circumstance. 70% of your job is learning through watching and being with others. Oh, and if, wow. And if we are remote, you are slowing mm -hmm. your progress down and where's your network? You gotta make friends. And being remote is not the way to do it. So we're gonna to have to come up to some hybrid model recognizing it has to include flexibility. No doubt about that. Chris, we've saved the most important question for last. From where can our loyal listeners purchase? Why I find you irritating? How can they best follow you, please? Yes, yes. Uh, you can find me uh, at my website is cpdesantis.com. And the, on the website, you can order the book from the publisher directly, or you can go to Amazon uh, or uh, Barnes and Noble's website or Books a Million, and you can order the book through them as well. I also have a podcast, but I don't know if I should be saying that on a, on a radio. Please, podcast. absolutely. <laughs> I have a I have a podcast with my friend Mary Abijay, who is an author as well, and it's called Cubicle Confidential. And what we do is write us, and we will we we answer three questions a week on on curious things that happen in the workplace for you. And so we give some uh, simple advice. So that's that's who I am. Terrific. I want to give that the website one more time: cpdesantis.com. DeSantis being D-E-S-A-N-T-I-S. Listeners, no excuse. You've got direct access to Chris. Please do yourselves a favor. Pick up this book, Why I Find You Irritating. Pick up one for you. Pick up one for a friend, <laughs> someone from a different generation. Yes. Share this because we really need more and more camaraderie, community in the workplace. And this book will go a long way to helping people of all the different generations work even better together. Chris DeSantis, we can't thank you enough for being with us here on Thank God for Monday. You've taught us a lot. You've inspired us really to take more and more cognizance about these generational issues. So continued success with this great book and all this other wonderful work that you're doing there in the Chicago area, in the States, and around the world. Thank you, Greg. Listeners, guess what? Once again, we're out of time. Greg saying our hope and prayer is that when you wake up on Monday morning, just like Chris DeSantis does, you'll say, thank God for Monday. Until next week for another episode of Thank God for Monday. Have a great week, everyone. Bye-bye.